0: Well, last year, we witnessed not one, but two royal weddings. We were absolutely spoiled for choice with royal weddings. And I'm not wanting to do a disservice to one of them, but I think one of them especially stood out. And that was the wedding of uh, Princess Meghan, as she's now known, and Harry. Uh, So they were married in Windsor Castle, uh, as you will remember if you watched it. And the guest list was, of course, absolutely star studded. Uh, All the celebs were there. The Beckhams were there. Uh, The Clooney's made an appearance. And even the Queen herself was there as well. (laughs) I think there's maybe a family connection. And not only the Queen, but also the Queen of Daytime TV, Oprah Winfrey, was there. (laughs) And so there's a lunchtime reception for 600 guests, and they had a menu of uh, smoked salmon canapes, pea and mint risotto, and slow-roasted Windsor pork. And that was followed by creme brulee tartlets and champagne macaroons. So it was a very fancy and a very tasty feast. And that was all before the evening reception. The guests had to give up their phones to ensure uh, that there was privacy. And they were treated to more champagne, more appetizers. And then the actress, uh, Idris Elba, who you might know from the TV series Luther. Uh, he's also a DJ, very talented man. Uh, so he provided the music for the night. And James Corden, who's maybe not such a talented man, uh, he, he, did, he didn't stand up. It's maybe a bit unfair. Uh, so it was a celebration with the best food, plenty of glamour and world-class entertainment, depending on your taste in comedy. And so one guest said, it was so magical, none of us wanted to leave. It was so magical, none of us wanted to leave. Now, I wonder this morning, if you had received an invitation to this royal wedding, what would you have done? I don't know what you think about the royal family. You might have very strong opinions either way, but I think for a lot of us, this is quite an easy question. Of course we would go. We wouldn't have to think about it for very long. You might, like me, not really care about what the dress looked like, but to enjoy a day sitting on the lawn of Windsor Castle in the sunshine, eating canapes, spotting a few celebs. Sounds like quite a tempting offer. To be there for this historic day when the whole world is watching would be quite a good thing. So what would you do? Well, this morning we're looking at this story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 14. And it's about an invitation not to a royal wedding, but to a great banquet. And there are three aspects that I want to look at uh, today. Firstly, there's the great banquet itself and what that represents. Secondly, we'll look at the response to the invitation to this uh, feast from some of the guests. And then finally, we'll look at this new offer that's made by the host of the banquet. But before we get to that, we'll need to talk a little bit about the context of this story. So we're told in verse 1 of chapter 14 that Jesus is telling this story at the house of a prominent Pharisee. And so gathered around the table are these Pharisees and these teachers in the law. They are the religious elites in Jewish society at that time. And so Jesus is speaking to his host and he's advising him about who should be invited to dinner. And he says in verse 12, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. And so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Now, one of the guests who's listening to this says to Jesus in verse 15, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. So there are a couple of things that we can see from these two verses. And firstly, the big question is, well, what does this banquet represent? What is Jesus talking about when he talks about this banquet? Well, it represents the celebration that will happen in the kingdom of God. And we know this because of the verse before, because one of the dinner guests says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And up until this point, Jesus had been talking about really an ordinary, everyday kind of dinner, a physical kind of dinner that you would eat. But now this guest has spoken about a spiritual feast. And so Jesus begins to tell this story about the banquet in the kingdom of God. And it's a banquet of celebration and provision. In the 1970s, there was a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And it was a call for Christians, especially in the West, to really take seriously the problem of worldwide poverty and to do something to reduce it. And that remains, as we know, a very big problem for lots of people in the world today. And it's something that as Christians, we should take seriously. But another great need is spiritual hunger, because that's a condition that affects every single one of us. As people who are naturally sinful and naturally created for God, we have this hunger, this spiritual hunger for God, and we are in desperate need of spiritual nourishment. And God has made this, what this image tells us is that God has made this incredible provision, this banquet for us to feed us to nourish us. And so what we find in the kingdom of God is peace and reconciliation with God. Jesus said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So Jesus is the one who provides us with access to this spiritual feast. And not only that, but he is the one who himself is that spiritual nourishment. He is our bread of life. As the commentator Matthew Henry said, uh, the grace of the gospel will be food and a feast for the soul of man. It'll be food and a feast for the soul of man. And so we need this spiritual nourishment. At times we can feel it, at other times we maybe don't feel it. But regardless of how we feel, the reality is that we need this spiritual fulfillment and we can only find it in Christ. And whilst we find nourishment in this life, which in the end is only temporary, ultimately one day we'll be satisfied when we enter the fullness of God's kingdom. And that's a place where there'll be no more hunger, no more pain, no more suffering in the eternal kingdom of God. And so what this image of the great banquet tells us is that God has given us this rich provision of grace. And it's infinitely greater than any feast or any banquet that we can have on this earth, even a royal wedding. Because it's eternal and it satisfies us at the deepest level of who we are. Secondly, what we're told in in this verse, in verse 16, is that the master who is God invited many guests to the banquet. And so this invitation that goes out, it's not an exclusive one. There is no VIP list to this uh, this banquet. It's not just given to a select few people because they're somehow worthy of the invitation. No, this invitation goes to the many. And the offer of salvation that comes to us as human beings is incredibly broad, God isn't looking for people who who seem to have it all together because the reality is that no such person exists. Not a single one of us deserves this favour and this grace that God gives to us because we all fall short of God's glory and we fall short of his standards. So this invitation goes out to the many. And not only that, but actually the invitation is totally free to us. And the only thing that the guests in this story have to do is just accept this invitation. So you would think that the response to this invitation would be an immediate yes, wouldn't you? It seems like a bit of a no-brainer. They've got this fantastic feast and it's totally free. And yet that's not the response that we see in this story. Let's look at verse 18 to 20. It says this. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five Yoke of Oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married and so I can't come. So the servant goes out to the guests to tell them that the feast is now ready Time to come. But one by one, they all make excuses as to why they can't be there. And there are a couple of reasons why these excuses are are fairly bad. Uh, For one thing, the custom in Jesus' day was that whenever a banquet was held, there would be two kinds of invitations that would be sent out. The first invitation was a little bit like what we might do today. If you you have a wedding, you might send out a save-the-date invite. So you would say, 20th of June, that's the day, please save that, book it off. So that was the kind of invitation that was sent out. So these guests would have known full well when the banquet was going to come. The second kind of invitation would be actually on the day when a servant would be sent out to tell them, now everything's ready and you can come. So presumably they'd agreed to come the first time, but when the actual time came, they refused to go. But another thing is that the excuses themselves are fairly weak. For the person who bought the field and said, Well, I need to go and, and check this field out, well the question is, well, surely you would have checked it out before you bought it. And the same thing goes for the person who, who bought the oxen. Surely you would have done your, your due diligence and seen to see what you're actually buying before you, you buy it. <clears throat> And as for the third guest, well, getting married, of course, it's a big deal, but it's no reason to miss this particular dinner. And so these excuses were really the first century equivalent to somebody saying, I'm sorry, I can't come. I'm washing my hair right now. They were weak. And all three of the dinner guests show an excessive focus on the things of this life, don't they? They're not in themselves bad things that they're focusing on. Owning lands or buying cattle, getting married, these are all good things, but they've become a distraction from the much, much greater thing. And actually, when it comes to denying God or refusing God's invitation to come into his kingdom, it isn't always a totally out-and-out rebellious attitude that will stop you. Sometimes it is. But very often, it can just be the distractions of this world, Where people will say, well, I don't reject God, but I just don't think about him. I've got too much going on in my life. Jesus taught another well-known parable about a farmer who goes out and sows seeds. The story goes that the farmer is sowing seeds and some of the seeds fall onto the path and the birds come and take it away. Some of the seeds fall onto stony ground. Some of it falls on good soil and produces fruit. But some of those seeds fall onto thorny soil. And what happens is that the seeds take root and they, they begin to grow when everything at first looks really promising. It looks good. But very soon the thorns also grow up and they strangle and choke the plant and it dies. And when Jesus was explaining this parable, he said, well, the seeds represent the spiritual fruit, the life of the believer. And the thorns represent the cares of this world, the buying of cattle, the buying of houses, the buying of different things, and yes, even relationships. They are the things that can suffocate the spiritual life of the believer. They're not bad things. Please don't misunderstand me. They're not wrong things, but they can become totally disastrous when they take over the rightful place that only God can take. J.C. Ryle put it very well when he said this. It's not ignorance of religion that ruins most men's souls. It is love of this present world. It is excessive attention to things which in themselves are lawful. Excessive attention to things which in themselves are lawful. And that's exactly what we see here with these three guests. They're focused so much on their own concerns that they lose out on the invitation to something much, much better. And I think that this parable is a warning to us, even as Christians, that we don't uh, miss out on God's kingdom because we're just so focused on our own concerns. You might be a Christian here this morning, and you might think, well, I've already accepted God's invitation to this great banquet. I'm looking forward to it. And so this story doesn't really apply to me. It might apply to other people, but it's not for me. And what I would want to say is not so fast not so fast, because there are two aspects to the kingdom of God. There's the future eternal aspect, and this is the part that we usually think of when we talk about the kingdom of God, that one day we'll be with God in heaven forever, enjoying his presence. But there also is the, the present day reality of the kingdom of God, and this is sometimes called the now and the not yet of the kingdom So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we're effectively saying is, God, we want your kingdom to come to this earth right here and right now. And we see the church as effectively an outpost of God's kingdom on this earth. So this story serves as a warning to us as Christians. We may have accepted the invitation to God's kingdom, and that is wonderful. We've accepted that Jesus has died in our place. But do we run the risk of saying, God, I don't want to join in with your kingdom right here and right now? Not, not just yet. I've got other things really to, to get focused on and to sort out. I've got my career to really build. I've got properties that I need to invest in. Lord, I've got my relationship that I need to focus on. There are so many distractions that can get in the way of our commitment to God. They're good things, and they're God-given gifts. But when we turn them into the ultimate things, then they become idols. And this, I think, is a real challenge uh, to us, especially when we live in a culture which tells us that we should define ourselves by how much we earn, how big our house is, what kind of phone we have, How big our car is, or maybe how good our relationships make us feel. In a consumer driven, materialistic culture, you are what you buy. And in a culture that's obsessed with sex and with relationships, we can feel that we're never quite happy unless we find that perfect person. And the reality is that that perfect person does not exist. And so we're defined by either what we buy how big our salary is, or who we're dating. So the question is not, well, how do we get rid of these things? No, no, they're not bad things. The question is, do we adore this stuff more than we adore Jesus himself? Do we own our possessions, or do our possessions own us? And have we let the cares of this world come in and choke us to the point where, we're not even willing or able to serve the Lord anymore. I think a really useful thing to do uh, sometimes is just to sit down and review uh, our lives to see, well, how much time am I actually investing in God's kingdom? Perhaps that's something we could do this week. Ask yourself, how much time am I actually giving to God versus just time that I'm spending in other distractions? How much of my money is going to myself and my own desires rather than to God's. And being honest, I have to say that so often, whenever I think about this, my heart is wrapped up in the things of this world. But it leads us to being totally ineffective in God's kingdom. And we have to keep on putting to death the idols of our hearts so that we can be more faithful. But you might be here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. You've not yet made that commitment. Uh, And perhaps you've heard the message of Jesus before. But you think to yourself, well, there are more pressing things at the minute. There are things that actually take up my time. And uh, can I just encourage you to think about something? And this is a fact of life. No matter who you are or what your beliefs are, this is just a reality. That the career that you have right now, it might look very secure and very satisfying, but it will not last. Retirement day will come one day. And the property portfolio that you might have, it might be absolutely tiny, it might be nothing, or it might be quite substantial. The bank balance that you have might be quite healthy, but in the end, it will not last either. All the money that we have, all the things that we have, in the end, will end up in somebody else's hands. And the relationships that you have with with that significant other or with your family and friends, those are really important things. They're really important. But even those will not save you and they will not satisfy you ultimately. Because there's nothing better, truly nothing better, than accepting this invitation into God's kingdom. And enjoying his presence forever. So let's continue with the story. There's the new offer that's made in verse 21 to 23. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry. So the servant returns and passes on the message from the excuse makers to the master of the banquet. And the reaction is anger. And it's justifiable anger because this invitation is so great and it's totally free and yet it's been thrown back in the master's face. And in fact, although we know that this invitation to us is totally free, it actually came at a really great cost to the master because we know that God had to sacrifice his only son, Jesus, in the most painful way imaginable so that we could get access to this this banquet. And so this feast has now been rejected. And verse 21 continues, he became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Now, if we think back to where this story was being told, uh, we're told in verse one, it's the house of a prominent Pharisee. And so around the dinner table are these uh, Pharisees, these teachers of the law, And so when one of them says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Well, the unspoken assumption is, well, Jesus, we're the kind of people who are going to be there, right? If anyone's going to be there, the Pharisees think it's going to be us. We know the law. We observe it. We teach it to other people. We're righteous people. Surely, Lord, if there's going to be a VIP list to that banquet, we're going to be on it. And so this story that Jesus tells, I think, would have come as a real shock to them. Because after being turned down by the first guests, the master then says, go out into the streets and the alleys, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. So who then are the initial guests in the story? Well, they are the Jews. They include the Pharisees who Jesus is talking to in this story. And the Jews, as we know, are the the people who've been invited to uh, to God's kingdom. They're the ones who've been chosen as God's special people. And yet many of them chose to disobey God and reject his offer of being part of the kingdom. They rejected the prophets, and many of the religious leaders would also later go on even to reject Jesus himself. So they lose out. And the new guests who are invited are the Gentiles. They're the people who the Pharisees would have considered to be totally inferior in every way, morally, culturally, socially, totally inferior. They are in spiritual terms, the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. The tax collectors and the sinners. The people who the Pharisees thought, well, they have no right to receive this invitation. Now, we have to to note here that this parable is not saying that now only Gentiles receive this invitation into God's kingdom. But rather that this invitation is open to absolutely everyone. And we know when we read the book of Acts, and Paul's letters as well, that the early church was this unique mixture of both Jews and Gentiles, And so the message is now everyone is invited into God's kingdom. There are no barriers to being part of God's family. And this is pretty scandalous grace, isn't it? Because the problem for the Pharisees was that they didn't consider themselves actually to be spiritually needy. And they certainly wouldn't have thought that they were crippled or blind or poor. And I think sometimes if we're honest, especially if we've been part of a church for a long time or Christians for a long time, what can happen is that this attitude of, well, spiritual pride can sometimes creep in. We would never say to God, God, I know I deserve your favor and your grace. I'm one of those people who deserves to go to heaven. But we might look at other people and think, well, God, at least I'm not as bad as those people. But this kind of spiritual pride stops us coming to the feast. And what this passage tells us is that if we want to enter into God's kingdom, we need to humble ourselves. We need to realize that we are desperately spiritually needy. It doesn't matter if you were born into a Christian family or how long you've been going to church for. We are always those people who are spiritually lame and poor. And that's always the case. We'll never reach a point where we get beyond this, where we can say, well, Jesus, I have enough grace now, and so I don't need you anymore. We can only come to this feast on the basis of what Christ has done for us. And we also see from this passage that God has a deep desire to save the lost. In verse 22 and 23, it says this. Sir, the servant said, What you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. So more invitations are sent out, and yet there's still room in the master's house. And God wants salvation for many, many people. He's got an earnest desire to save the lost. And if God has this desire, then that should be our desire as well. Because God is is patient and he's willing and wanting to see more and more people receive this invitation to come to this great banquet. Why? Well, because the initial guests had rejected the offer, but that wouldn't stop God's sovereign plan. The master wanted his house to be full. And so if the first guests aren't going to come, it's not going to mean empty seats at the dinner table. And what this means for us is that our mission is not yet over. We have this great commission that Jesus shared in Matthew 28 to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them all that he had commanded us. And that is still our mission today. We have to persist in in reaching out and telling our friends, and our family members, our colleagues, whoever we know who who don't yet know Jesus, and to invite them to this, this feast. And the amazing thing is that actually in this story, yes, we are those who are spiritually lame and poor, but we're also the people who get to be the servants. We get to be the ones who go out with this invitation And and to ask people, to compel people to come in, into God's kingdom. But there is a reality check here. Uh, There's a sobering thought as the story comes to an end. Because there's a limit to this open invitation. Now it is true that if if we do repent, we can always come back to God. Because God is unlimited in his grace and in his love. But we are not unlimited in our time here on earth. And so we have nobody to blame but ourselves if we choose to reject him. In verse 24, the master says this. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. And what we find here is that making excuses always leads, in the end to a closed door. It always leads to a closed door. And the guests who turn down the master are given this really clear message, you will not get a taste of the banquet. And the assumption for a lot of people, I think, when they reject the gospel is to say, well, I'm not going to go this time. I'm not going to become a Christian just yet because, well, I want to live my life my way. I don't want to have God take over my life and change things. And this can really often be a big stumbling block to people, I think. They may say, well, I'm going to put this decision off to another time. Whenever I you know, reach my deathbed, that's the time to think about all of this God stuff. And what this parable is telling us is that is not an option. If we try to postpone this decision, really, it's a rejection of God. There is an urgency to this invitation. And so we are compelled, if we're here today and we're Christians, we're compelled to, to reach out to our family and friends with this, this invite to this great banquet. And to make it clear that there really isn't time to lose. Many of you will know of Amy Carmichael. She's probably the most well-known uh, missionary to ever come from Northern Ireland. And the extraordinary thing about Amy Carmichael is that she was so ordinary. She was born in Malaisle, only a short drive away from here, about 150 years ago. And she started off as a young woman, uh, she started a Sunday school for girls in Belfast. And eventually that grew and grew to the point where they had to find a venue to seat 500 people. So many people came. After that she attended a mission conference and it was there that she felt this call or heard this call to become a missionary. And then she spent some time in Japan before then moving to Donover in southern India. And there she spent 55 years as a missionary. So she preached the gospel and she saved many, many young girls from forced prostitution. There was a culture back then around Hindu temples where young girls would be forced essentially into becoming slaves. And uh, she gave them shelter and education. And in the last two decades of her life, she suffered a really bad injury and she was confined to her bed. But even from her bed, she still managed to write 16 books. And many of those books are still read by people all around the world today. She was an inspiration to lots of people, and she still is. And one of the things that she said about mission was this. We will have all eternity to celebrate our victories, but only a few short hours to win them. Amy Carmichael knew the urgency and the priority that this mission, this great commission, had. It was a very different time that she lived in, She worked in a very, very different culture to ours. But the mission was the same. Because the mission hasn't changed in the last 2,000 years, and it hasn't changed in the last 150 years. It never changes. And it's to go out and to make disciples. And that's something that she took really seriously, and so should we. So the question for us this morning is this. Have we accepted the Master's invitation? Have we recognized that Jesus died so that we can have access to this spiritual feast? And if that's the case, then are we actually going out and sharing that with our friends and with our family who don't yet know Jesus? God has given us this rich provision of grace. This banquet that we have is a treasure stored up for us in heaven. It's an inheritance that will never ever perish or spoil or fade. And there's no career, there's no house, uh, there's no (laughs) relationship even that will fill this, this hole that we all have that only God can fill. Nothing else will satisfy our spiritual hunger. And nothing can compare to the glory and the majesty and the richness of that feast. And one day we will experience the fullness of that in God's kingdom. Let's pray.